and welcome to another episode of every horror movie on netflix it is as you probably already know the podcast where we watch review and discuss every horror movie on netflix i'm patrick and i'm back again this week with my regular partners in crime chris hello and steven hi and believe it or not y'all we got lazy for a little while and we didn't have any damn guests for for a bit but we're having our second guest in as many episodes Please give a warm welcome back to Allison with a Y. Hi, Allison with a Y. Hi, it's so good to be unlocked from the spoiler room. I've just been down there for the past year and a half. The spoiler trunk in the basement? <laughs> yeah, 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 it's, it's not very roomy, so that was a generous word for it. It took us a while to find that Enola key. <laughs> Well, we are here today to discuss uh, Guillermo del Toro's 2015? Yep. Joint Crimson Peak. But before that, uh, let's do the thing we usually do and uh, find out what everybody's been watching and reading and enjoying in the horror sphere lately. Anyone want to get dibs on that? Chris, I feel like we should tag team because we've seen a lot of stuff lately. I've seen so much stuff, but <laughs> in the interest of time, uh, I, we can't talk about most of it. I will give a shameless plug for my letterboxd because i'm on letterboxd now and i need i have one follower and i need more followers so please look me up on letterboxd at amon chris e-h-m-o-n chris because i've been watching a lot of movies and i've been uh kind of logging them all as i go uh, the only one i'll talk about right now is i finally watched reanimator which i had Hell never yes. seen before and it was it was <laughs> just my cup of tea i loved it um it's so it's was it a shot in the arm for you? It, it was a shot in the arm, yeah. Because he's, he's got the injectable, you know, yeah. the serum. Was it a sentient decapitated head on your genitals? Um, it wasn't, not that far. But, um, no, you know, okay. it was just a, just a really fun, imaginative movie. Funny without trying too hard to be funny. I don't know. I, I had nothing but good things to say about it. Big Halloween energy in that movie. Great film. Like Halloween, you should clarify the the season, the aesthetic, and not the film. Yes, Halloween. the aesthetic. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's 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 all I want to plug. Those two things, Stephen. What do you got? You probably saw a lot of the same stuff as I did. A lot of the same stuff because we've both been watching Joe Bob. Um, usually, I conk out after the first movie and catch up later. But um, you know, my favorite so far in this new Joe Bob season on Shutter was I don't even know if you can call it a horror movie, but Dead Beat at Dawn. Oh, Dead Man. Beat at Dawn. Jim Van Bieber. Van what a tour. Yeah. <laughs> oh, is it Bieber or Beber? He says Bieber in the Bieber, episode. Jim Van, yeah. Jim Van Beber, Bieber, what my hero, my personal hero, the man who's going to get me off my ass to make a movie, because this is great film. We've been bugging Patrick about it for two weeks now. Oh, it's regional cinema at its finest. I mean, this is just a movie made on a shoestring budget and um, seemingly a complete disregard for mortality. Like, I can't believe no one died while filming this thing. There are some insane stunts. I mean, somebody jumps off the side of the freeway into a ravine at one point. Yeah. Um, I don't even know how to talk about it. It's I don't got know. drugs, it's got gangs, it's got like some of the most realistic street fights I've ever seen in a movie, and I'm 
fully convinced people were seriously injured during some of those stunts. Uh, all I can say is one of my favorite movies for a long time was El Mariachi, which was you know famously yeah. made for 6000 bucks by Robert Rodriguez just using a camera and whoever he had available. I think I like this movie more than El Mariachi, and it's, fits, it's the same aesthetic. It's just like some kids got a camera and they're friends and they just went for broke. It feels like a home movie. Yeah, well, that's all I got to plug. Uh, Patrick, did you have anything? Yeah, I've been watching a lot of shit lately. Um, I finally caught up to, and this is this is actually the crossover between my standard talking about comics, horror related comics, and horror related movies. I finally caught up to the New Mutants, which uh, oh, wow. is a is a horror inspired take on a comic property that is kind of rarely crossed into horror in the actual comic. Um, it was uh, it's about as disappointing as i had been led to believe a lot of potential there that's never going to get acted upon because uh disney owns the x-men now and they're probably going to do something a lot better with it but that was i don't know it was an interesting experiment going from the comics to the movie and also i mean i guess this is uh in a way a good segue to today i've been reading and watching some materials to kind of prepare for crimson peak because crimson peak was uh, to at least some degree inspired by The Turn of the Screw, which I finally read for the first time, and that was delightful, delightful exercise, and finally watched the 1961 adaptation of The Turn of the Screw. I always want to say The Taming of the Shrew instead of The Turn of the Screw for some reason, <laughs> but I watched the the 61 adaptation, uh, The Innocents, and also in the past six months, of course, I watched The Haunting of Bly Manor, so I've taken in a lot of different interpretations of The Turn of the Screw <laughs> over the past year. Really enjoyed The Innocents, though. There have been a lot. I mean, there was also that movie, The Turning, with Finn Wolfhard that came out this year that was apparently fucking terrible. Oh. Um, but it's it's been a big year for Henry James. Haven't heard God about that one. Soul. Yeah. Sounds like a disaster. I'm glad you enjoyed The Innocence, though. We were texting about that a bit. Like, I saw that a few years ago, and because I'm a huge Truman Capote fan, and he wrote the mm-hmm. screenplay, and that movie just kind of blew my mind that a film from that era could still be so just ravishingly beautiful and effective and creepy this felt very contemporary to me despite its age yeah i mean it has that very stagey sort of theatrical acting style that you expect of movies of a certain age but also it is genuinely scary and i mean there's some subject matter in it that is generally unsettling as far as some of the just sexual implications of the movie are really disturbing and honestly i loved haunting of bly manor but i think i might have actually liked the innocence more as a take on that material i was i was really glad i had the opportunity to take all of that in though because it's obviously an interesting and influential story so it was cool to absorb all those different takes on it. Allison, how about you? I've been re-listening to one of my favorite podcasts. Us? <laughs> my second favorite podcast. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, actually, there's okay, there's there's two like horror podcasts that I've been listening to. One of which um, I've listened to like at least four other times, and it's still always as good as when I first listened to it, and that's called the Black Tapes. Um, I think mm. it came out in 2015, so same year as Crimson Peak. And it's just a really well done, very creepy podcast. It's presented like a journalist is researching, like falls into researching the occult. And it brings in a lot of real elements of occult history 
So it, but it's fictional, but right? it's fictional. But when you start okay. listening to it, you're like, is this real? Is this fictional? It's very, very well hmm. done. Um, so it puts you very much in it. And like, it still freaks me out. And this is the fifth time I've listened through it. Um, so that's been enjoyable as it always is. And then I've been listening to this podcast that some people that I know did called the call of the void. They just came out with their second season and it's really good. It's also a horror podcast. Um, it takes place in new Orleans and it's hard to explain, but it's very well produced, very well written. And I'm, I'm very impressed by it and it features like a bunch of performers i know from around here too which is wild for me to like listen to it and be like oh my god i know who that is well i mean it also features you at one point in the first season yeah (laughs) but the second season just came out and it's like the second season is even better than the first season i was pretty impressed with the first season but like the second season i'm like wow they really upped the game on it I have nothing but respect for for fictional podcasts, especially horror podcasts. I have a soft spot in my heart for like radio drama type of stuff. Uh, it's it's really a a form of art, well above sitting on your ass talking about what you thought about movies you didn't make. Listen, <laughs> you all are incredible artists. That's the first time anyone has said that about us. And it will likely be the last, but we'll, we'll accept the praise. And we will put that on our website. We'll put it on our merch. <laughs> All yeah, incredible the, artists. Allison with a Y. <laughs> yeah, the incredible art t-shirt is coming right up. All right. Well, while we're talking about incredible art, let's make the extremely logical segue to Crimson Peak. A gothic romance. We're already disagreeing, and we just started talking about the movie. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> it was it was it was gonna happen. We might as well start now. <laughs> I mean, if you tuned in to hear about a horror movie, you fucked up because this is famously not a horror movie, but a gothic gothic romance. It's a gothic horror. It's a gothic romance. Gothic horror has elements of romance in it. Of course it does. I am only saying what came out of GDT's mouth himself. Oh, did did GDT reject the idea that it's a horror movie? I, I, I think he's emphasized that it is not horror, but gothic romance. Well, okay, so I don't know if y'all remember when this movie came out. Do you remember seeing the trailer for this? Because I do, and I was very much looking forward to this thing coming out and getting a glimpse of it the trailer makes this look like a full-on fucking ghost horror movie and it's not it's more nuanced and complicated than that and it misled a lot of people what there are there are murders in this there are ghosts all over the place there's a goddamn haunted house it is creepy as fuck here's the thing here's the thing you are both saying it's not a horror movie this is blowing my mind i'm not saying that i you didn't even let me finish my thought so i think guillermo del toro may have said that i'm guessing the context may have been in backlash to the trailer and the public response to this movie because this was like kind of marketed as like like a full-on rager of a horror movie and it is not that it is a horror movie but it's heavy on the melodrama too and i don't think like mainstream audiences were really prepared for that and the trailer did it quite an injustice fair mainstream audiences sometimes when it comes to horror don't like a slow build they just want to be thrown in it's why like the whole aughts were full of just like you know body horror and gore 
And like th- three teenagers, they're driving for 30 seconds and their car breaks down. And then they, and they get murdered. Dying. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I suspect we well, we might get into it, but it, there might be some tension between, you know, the studio wanting a horror movie and whatever Del Toro was trying to do with this movie. Because I thought that the scenes that leaned into straight horror were very kind of abrupt and inconsistent with the rest of the movie personally we'll get into that but i think that's just del toro Hmm. that's just what he does and i love that about this movie i just wish there were more of it Hmm. god it feels like we're reviewing already this is gonna be a tense one (laughs) all right down to the spoiler room we go let's let's take the old-fashioned elevator down there and open up those clay pits of spoilers so so here's here's your premise I'll, i'll set this up for you we have young Edith. She's a clerk for her father, who's some sort of wealthy businessman in New York City. Mm-hmm. And she has dreams of writing great feminist fiction novels like Mary Shelley. No, no, no. I, I, I'm already going to disagree with you there. She <laughs> wants to write horror. She's trying to write horror. And she's told that she can't because she's a woman and people can tell that it's written by a woman. So she should write something a little more romantic. Okay, fair. That's like a huge, that's a huge part of this movie. <laughs> fair. Okay. Um, okay. I mean, he said fiction like... Like Mary Shelley, which would lead most people to think Frankenstein. So, I mean, I don't think it was that off base. Technically sci-fi. And then one day, Tom Hiddleston shows up playing Sir Thomas Sharp, some wealthy baronet from England who is trying to secure financing for an apparatus he built out of Legos that dredges blood red clay from the foundation of his home. I'm just envisioning like within the fiction of the movie like the char- like Tom Hiddleston being a character in the movie who is playing Sir Thomas yes. Sharp I mean, it's, in it, the, within the film. It's Loki and this is just another trick. Crimson Peak written by Charlie Kaufman. I feel like that's not an inaccurate uh, assessment of Tom Hiddleston's performance. Tom Hiddleston playing himself in a movie playing someone else. Yeah, I mean, that is fairly par for the course for he, Tom Hiddleston. Yeah, he doesn't disappear into the role. <laughs> no, the entire, I watched this for the second time with a friend last night, and we just called him Loki the whole movie. Yeah. I never bothered to learn the character's name or anything. <laughs> oh, man, when he's just, like, tearing her apart in that one scene, I was like, oh, big Loki energy. Oh, yeah. I was so into it. So sorry, Chris. Back to the no, synopsis. This is fine. This is a good clarifying detail. So he shows up trying to trying to get financing uh, from our hero Edith's father and his business partners. Uh, it doesn't go well, but he does fall in love with Edith. She falls in love with him, and basically he's about to whisk her away to London when her father, who doesn't quite like this guy, decides to do a little digging, uncovers a dark secret. We don't know what it is. The father is murdered soon after, and uh, our hero ends up running away to London to move into the creepy mansion owned by Tom Hiddleston and his sister, played by Jessica Chastain, and it's haunted it's in disrepair. There's blood red clay seeping through everywhere. There's something ominous going on with all this. And our hero, Edith, is trying to figure out what it is. Also important is the, the backstory that Edith's mom died when Edith was a child. And she has seen the ghost of her mom on multiple occasions. So, yes. so ghosts have been with Edith her whole life, basically. And the ghost of her mom specifically has told her, stay the hell away from Crimson Peak. Beware of Crimson Peak. 
Edith doesn't know what Crimson Peak is, we know that Crimson Peak is probably the place where she's going with Tom Hiddleston. Which is a running thread throughout this movie that if you've ever read or seen a, a gothic horror before, you can pretty easily figure out where things are going. I think it's fairly a uh, light work to stay a couple steps ahead of this film. No comment from anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was meant to be shocking. I think it was meant to be aesthetic. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I won't disagree with you there. Yeah. It that's is shocking okay. though. Oh uh, yeah. There are, there are moments. It has its moments. There are some twists. Look. There are some turns. I would generally agree with Steven that the plot seems a little bit rote especially compared to the detail put into, say, the sets and and the things that are very extravagant in the movie. I also think, as somebody who loves gothic horror stories, that it's not untrue to the genre, because I think in a lot of ways, it follows the same beats of a lot of classical Mm -hmm. gothic horror Mm -hmm. stories. Like, there's usually, like, one twist and turn, like, one little, like, ah, surprise, gotcha, but yeah. there's always plenty of clues leading up to it, which is what I think this movie also does. Yeah, it, it's, it, I mean, again, I feel like I'm reviewing it, but I, I feel like it does help to set context for what kind of movie this is. It is couched in being an homage to classic gothic horror while also trying to take it to new extremes. But there's this constant push and pull between how seriously are we to take this material. Clearly, Del Toro has a love of those kinds of films, though, and kind of puts his own spin on it visually and narratively. Well, I mean, Del Toro is like, you know, when I think of Del Toro, I think of like a fairy tale. He's got, you know, kind of the the child's brain, and I mean that in the most flattering way. He's fascinated by sentimental things. He's fascinated by visually uh, interesting things, glamorous things, fantasy sort of elements. And so it's, it's hard for me. I don't take the movie seriously like I would take you know, a conjuring movie seriously or something. It's kind of got that veneer of camp. You know, they come to the mansion and he's like, oh yeah, the house is, you know, seeping with blood red clay and it, it screams when the wind blows from the <laughs> east, the whole house bellows. And it's like, yeah, why not? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I love those details. Like, I mean, I, I, well, the clay requires an explanation. You could have the house just, you know, often make, creepy noises as a haunted house usually does but i love that this movie specifically explains it to you as the east wind blowing and that it screams like i just love how the house has a personality of its own like i just want to walk around that house i love the i love the red clay and how it's always sinking into this blood looking clay that like runs from the walls for no physically sensible reason i love it yeah, in contrast against the snow as well, all the while. I mean, I'm a huge mm-hmm. fan of just the image of blood on snow. I think it is, I don't want to say underused, but it's something that immediately unnerves me on like a lizard brain level when I see it. And I love that mm-hmm. he just like fucking doubles down. And this is a whole estate where every time you get a, um, an establishing shot of the house, it's it's blood and it's snow and it's messy. Well, and specifically, it adds like an extra level of unnervingness to it when there's not necessarily blood on top of the snow but if you step in the snow your footprint will be bloody underneath because there's red clay underneath like that's an extra i I just like that it just is extra icky and beautiful and weird to me it's basically like the planet in the last jedi yeah exactly yeah 
Yeah, totally. Yeah. I was being silly, but <laughs> no, I no, thought that's of it exactly too. what it is. <laughs> yeah, Ryan probably ripped it off. I think one of my favorite little aesthetic pieces are the moths in the attic of the house. Um, oh, yeah. How they cover the walls and how really beautiful and obviously like haunting it is because it's such a symbol for the decay of the house yeah. because the moths feed off of decay um, and they live in the shadows and it's it's really striking um, when you go to that location of the house and you see them covering the walls and flapping their wings harmless but ominous. Is that when we see the ant eating a moth? No, no that's, that's early. That's exposition earlier. That's a creepy shot, too. That's one of that's my favorite thing in the whole movie. Yeah, me too. Spoilers. That whole, that whole, that whole um, exchange. <laughs> but, like, that felt so, like... The movie was kind of, like, lulling me into, you know, just kind of a a sleepy melodramatic vibe and then we just get this pan down to ants eating a butterfly in the grass and the close-up of an ant like fucking breaking its eye open and it was like the opening of blue velvet almost where Mm -hmm. like there's just like this unspeakable primal sort of violence lurking beneath the surface of everyday life that we often just kind of step over without even acknowledging it or noticing it i thought that was a little bit of a metaphor perhaps i don't know um, <laughs> Gee, I wonder. But you know, th- that's the thing because when we talk about all the decay here, that's kind of there's some tension in the movie around that because this guy comes to the United States, Loki does, as a <laughs> baronet, and you know he's supposedly of money, and and our hero Edith is the one who notices that, like you know, he's he's coming here like he's rich, but he's wearing shabby clothes, etc. And then she gets to this guy's mansion, and it's it's like arriving at the fucking fire festival, like. There's <laughs> No, there's no roof. It's cold as hell. There's like the floorboards are like falling out from under your feet. Um, so basically, the place is a fucking dump, and that kind of becomes important um, to the plot. But you know, it, it, it it's kind of set. They keep making apologies for ever or, or explanations for everything. They're like, oh yeah. yeah, it's just it's just this little thing. Ah uh, yeah, it's just this little thing, and it's like it's, <laughs> only the whole roof is caving in. It's snowing inside for the entire movie. No big deal. Don't worry yeah. about it. Yeah, we'll we'll get a fire going in the bedroom, <laughs> <laughs> if you know what I mean. One of the things that like actually bothered me about the movie is that she's just like she's kind of okay with the state of the house like she arrives and it's like you know she hasn't necessarily been fully primed for it and she gets there and she's like this is fine (laughs) well she thinks she's in love and her father's been murdered you know she's in a very vulnerable state it's like when you go out with someone hot and then you go to their (laughs) apartment and it's fucking disgusting it smells like garbage you don't (laughs) always leave you you should (laughs) let this be a lesson to everyone yeah, I think this is maybe just revealing some deeper uh, differences in all of our dating styles. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, to to kind of circle back around to the the tone issue. I mean, so Del Toro's interesting. I have, I have a very complicated relationship with Del Toro. He's he's sort of like Paul Thomas Anderson to me, where I'm either I'm a hundred and fifty percent on board for the movie, or I just can't 
fucking stand it. And I like Del Toro when he leans into the goofy and the campy and the crazy stuff more. I love this movie. I love Pacific Rim. I love the Hellboy movies. But you know what? I could take or leave The Shape of Water. It didn't do it for me. And and same thing with Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth did not hit for me. I like him when he's just going balls out instead of trying to make you know a serious movie about themes and feelings because it just always those ones always wind up feeling too i guess simplistic for me and this and and this one he's just he's going balls out he's going for the crazy visuals the crazy murders i don't feel the sense of tonal confusion about it i think mostly because of jessica chastain's performance and i feel like this is very intentional but i feel like the movie uh sort of roots in camp around her like her performance is so just beautifully deliciously icy and just just the right amount of over the top where you can tell she's she's scary she's villainous but also she and del toro are not taking this quite seriously and they're having fun with it and letting uh hiddleston and wazakowska kind of just orbit around that works to me and kind of ties it all together and makes me go oh yeah this is exactly this degree of taking itself seriously on the scale. Yeah. That, this movie is very divisive on that particular point. For me, I did not really like Jessica Chastain's performance. I felt she was hmm. fine, but I felt it was like a little bit sleepy at times. I felt like it could, I felt like everyone's performance should have leaned further into camp across the board for this movie to work for me. But a lot of people really fucking love this movie and will argue to the death about the performances and the way that the actors handle the material. So I consider it a fault of the movie for me, but I do appreciate that it seems to work for a lot of horror fans. I I don't know. I've seen it twice and I just couldn't quite get on its wavelength, but I can see how it could work. Yeah, we should say, I mean, we've all seen this movie before, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this yeah. was a rewatch for everybody. Yeah, so this was a rewatch for everybody. I saw this movie in like 2018, I think, and I could not remember a damn thing about it watching it this second time. There are a couple major things I remembered, but for the most part, I was right there trying to solve the mystery like I was the first time because just none of it stuck with me the first time around. Except for the, the visuals. I remembered the visuals. I remembered the stairwell. I could I could have drawn you a map of that foyer um, without rewatching the movie. But mm. none of it stuck with me, which is just about the most damning thing you can say about a movie. But I, I did enjoy it. And Jessica Chastain in particular, I thought rocked. Yeah, I particularly liked her because I've never seen her have an acting style like she had in this movie. I've never seen her do that before, what she did. She's normally, I think, a very like realistic actor. She leans a lot into realism. And obviously, you know, because this movie is so stylized, she didn't. But she still brought her, I think, skill in very, like, real acting into it. Um, So it it created a really interesting performance for me that I personally loved. And to me, made her deeply chilling and unsettling. Yeah, it has a stiltedness to it, but it still feels like a real person and not just a caricature. Yeah. To me. I guess this is where I'm coming from, and this is just my own particular taste. I wanted a little bit more of a caricature. Mm. I would have delighted in that. People have compared her to Mrs. Danvers in Rebecca, and 
I wish her performance had been closer to that. I feel like it would have kind of bridged some of the other gaps in tonal inconsistencies in the movie across the board for me. I actually, you know, that was that was on my hit list this week for like the Crimson Peak, uh, you know, companion viewing guide i actually have never seen rebecca it's uh it's in the queue it's coming up sometime soon for me and we're of course talking about the the ben wheatley army hammer remake yeah. that everyone loves no right? yeah, yeah obviously of course of I, course i mean you know hitchcock whatever but ben wheatley kind of from what i've heard anyway like really went up to the hitchcock version right oh completely yeah, yeah. just blew it out of the water people people do that you know like like vince vaughn i thought played a better norman bates than than the original norman bates <laughs> <laughs> I don't even. <laughs> I hope that at comes point, on I Netflix at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, that would be a take that Chris would have. <laughs> I know, right? You sold it so well. Yeah. I want to see that sometime. I mean, this is a total dog leg or wizard hand or whatever it's called, but. Uh, <laughs> I want to. I really want to see that Psycho remake at some point. I'm so curious it. about it. Oh, have you? How does Vince measure up? He's just Vince Vaughn. I mean, that's he is who he always is. I don't he's, know. Who he's stabbing was. her in the shower. He's got a Chicago Blackhawks jersey. On. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> shop for shop, but not costume for costume. <laughs> I've heard this is a little bit of a tangent, but we're on it, so why not? I've not seen it, but I've heard quite a bit about it. And Allison, maybe you can confirm this, maybe not. I, I want to see it either way. But I've heard that it's shot for shot, except there's like one scene where Vince Vaughn is like masturbating oh, yeah. oh, while yeah. watching through a keyhole. Like they added that one moment yeah. that just did need to be there. Yeah. And that alone just kind of fascinates me. It makes me want to see if I can like piece together why they made that. That's right? probably the whole impetus for the whole movie. Like, if that's the only thing that changed, it's because they, at very early on, they were like, you know that scene, that famous scene? What if we showed you this? <laughs> yeah, Gus Van Sant was just watching Psycho one day, and he was like, man, this is really good, but you know what would make it better? Vince Vaughn jerking off. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, so like the whole movie is Gus Van Sant masturbating, so maybe it's, uh, <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's personal for him. As Chris, as Chris would say, maybe it's a little bit of, me- of a metaphor there. Speaking of metaphors, I don't know if I had much trouble. I mean, you guys have been talking about the tone of this movie so much. I was, I mean, the tone I thought was all pretty cohesive for me. I mean, like I said, when I see a, a Guillermo del Toro movie, I'm expecting it's like re- it's like reading a pop up book. It's like. Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> oh, that is you—you you just nailed it. That's it. It's like reading okay. a horror pop-up book. Yeah. That's, that's I, Del Toro. I have to jump in here because I had the same thought pop into my mind right before we recorded. I was uh, taking a shower and just kind of reflecting on this movie and thinking, what would like what would improve this movie? Oh, if it were just a pop-up book, like those <laughs> Edward, Go- like those Edward Gorey pop-ups with the yeah. little figures. You need tabs. You need little oh, tabs. I want it. You need a little tab where you pull it and the little skeleton comes out of the thing or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Like if Guillermo del Toro had designed a pop-up book instead of making this movie, I would have it on in the most prominent place in my apartment to show off for all to see. You spin the wheel and the little clay dredger dredges the bloody clay. Oh, yeah. yeah. That'd be great. One million percent. That'd be great. But when you talk about metaphors, you know, I'm, I'm the guy who's always looking for themes and stuff in these movies. And this movie throws so much shit at you, like the moths, like 
the family history of all the characters and so on and so forth. I just short circuited like, like R2D2 when he gets shot, (laughs) all my flaps opened up and I just fell over. And I said, I can't parse what this movie is about thematically. Um, there is voiceover at the beginning and the end of the movie that kind of tells yeah. you what the movie's about thematically. Uh, but I feel like there's a lot more going on in the movie, but I just can't. There's just so much shit. I don't know what the clay means. I don't know what the moths mean. I, uh, I'm sure there's a good reason for all of it, but it's just it's sensory overload. It all means death. Doesn't everything just mean death? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think like I, I think it's I think it's the impression I got this time around is that it it is deep on its own level thematically like in a self-contained way there's like a lot of stuff about just you know old world and new world and and you know old money and and new money and like it's like kind of gatsby-esque almost at times <laughs> oh yeah we're old money old as balls <laughs> but in the way that a lot of like like some of these gothic stories are but i don't know that it has anything to say about like the real world beyond the, the isolated world of this movie. Well, I'm I'm a, I'm gonna hit you with some shit here, and this is something hit me I just with some facts. Here's something. It's not facts. It's just some bullshit that I came up with and cobbled <laughs> together in my head about two minutes ago. Absolutely. So oh, I love I'm, it. I love I'm it. Fully prepared for the the plane to just fall apart on the dump runway. It. Dump it. But so early in the in the film, uh, Tom Hiddleston comes in to show off his Lego machine to uh, Mia Wasikowska's dad. And uh, dad shuts Loki right down and is like, you know, I don't know if you know this, but in America, we get by through effort, not privilege. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's clear that dad is uh, is a capitalist fat cat himself. And and I think there's at least something here and it's not the deepest thing in the world. But, I mean, I think there's something to the fact that uh loki is like endlessly trying to come up with funding for his machine that digs natural resources out of the earth but never Mm -hmm. quite like succeeds at doing so and he just has to keep killing people to generate capital to create his invention i mean yeah the the motivations for the the (laughs) motivations for the characters are there and it's all you know built wonderfully into this little world i just don't think it's a movie that has any I would love to hear somebody who like walked away from this movie. Could be one of you. Who knows? Maybe you've been holding back. But somebody who walked away from this movie with like a profound lesson about life. No. To the extent that there is a lesson about life, I think it's fairly pessimistic. We might talk about it in the spoiler room. Um, but if, I, if you want a lesson about life from a Guillermo del Toro movie, go watch The Shape of Water. <laughs> oh, God. No, thank you. That's another movie that, you know what? I saw that in the theater and it did not stick. I can barely remember it. It it didn't do it for me either, and I realize I'm in the very very small minority on that. But it just it 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 just feels too clunky to me when he tries to make like a point in his movies. And I guess maybe that's why you know we're talking about sort of lack of theme or lack of cohesion of theme in this movie. And I just pulled together this theme about capitalism and whatever. But I'm almost kind of glad that he doesn't try and shoot for something bigger with this. Because when he does, I often feel like, okay, dude, like, yes, I've been led by the nose to, you know, Mm -hmm. different, different people are okay, too, is the shape of water. And, you know, 
Pan's Labyrinth is, uh, you know, the Spanish Civil War. I forget already, but but I'm I'm glad. I, I was actually comforted, Patrick, to hear that you are on the same page with me about Pan's Labyrinth. I didn't know that, and it surprises me. But but I find that the, my biggest hangup with Del Toro is that. You know, he seems like just the sweetest guy, and he is so knowledgeable about history and horror, and he's a great filmmaker, but he has a sentimental streak that I just cannot get behind sometimes. Yeah. And And that's where his movies, like Pan's Labyrinth, has something similar to what's going on in this movie, where there are long periods of kind of whimsical sentimentality, and then just like the most brutal fucking thing you've ever seen in your life, (laughs) and then you're left to recover from that and try and reconcile that with what seems to be the point of the movie, and it just never quite gels for me. And then with this movie... I appreciate that he doesn't seem to be trying to make any kind of grand statement on human nature. Yeah, and I mean, Pan's Labyrinth, I, to be fair, I haven't seen it since it came out. And I've actually been wanting to revisit it and see if it sticks with me better than it did when I was, you know, fucking 20-whatever I was when it came out. I, I, I actually shouldn't make a, a grand sweeping statement on that. I just remember it didn't hit with me when it came out, other than, like, thinking the design of it was incredible yeah. because his movies are always impeccably designed. Allison, what's your what's your relationship with Del Toro, Ben? I know that at the very least you're a much bigger fan of The Shape of Water than any of us. Yeah, uh, I, I really liked that movie. You know, aside from the fish fucking part. Um, <laughs> that's the whole oh, see, movie. The... <laughs> what? <laughs> that's not the whole movie. Get out of here. <laughs> well, you mean like the you mean the actual like sex scene? I assume. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Fish love. You know, whatever. That's what the whole movie's about. Well, that's what. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell did you like? The, the no, Cold War? I, I. Okay, this is not a podcast to review that movie, but if you're asking. <laughs> it is right now, and Chris, stop interrupting her. Let her speak. <laughs> I'm sorry. Please. I, 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 I want to hear your take. It was just it was just alarming how you're like, I love the shape of art except for the fish love part. I think it could have been effective as a platonic friendship um platonic love but at the same time and this is what i've said to people time and time again but one thing that i really appreciated about the shape of water and appreciated that del toro went to was you never see a disabled person sexualized or any sexual relationship in a movie and i deeply appreciate the depiction that she that the character the main character in that could be a sexual um being and i think that was something that they did quite well and was it weird that it was with a fish yeah did that make you uncomfortable (laughs) absolutely but somewhere out disabled folks somewhere out there there's a fish man for you at the end of the day i liked that like she didn't care that like there was this creature that people thought was a monster. She saw the human nature behind it. And she was somebody who the whole world dismissed and the creature saw her too. And it didn't matter to the creature that she couldn't speak because that wasn't how that character communicated. So it didn't matter. And I thought that that was really beautiful. And so that's yeah. why I liked that movie. And also yeah. aesthetically, I found it very cool. 
And and look, I mean, I feel like this has been the Comedy Central roast of Guillermo del Toro, but <laughs> I I don't mind him at all. Like even though his movies don't really stick with me, um, you know, you can call them sentimental, but I think they're sincere and they have, yeah, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. they have kind of these broad sort of storybook, you know, morality tale sort of things in them, and that's fine. It's like it doesn't really excite me viscerally personally, but I can appreciate him as an artist. I can appreciate that uh he sees the world a certain way and he's interested in things he's interested in and i've i've don't think i've disliked uh guillermo del toro movie well i was just gonna say one thing that i think about guillermo del toro and maybe why the stuff isn't super super deep like the meanings is because i think he fancies himself a teller of fairy tales you know that he makes a little bit more adult but at the end of the day he is telling these very fairy tale stories and i think you can see that across a lot of his work in fairy tales you know they have the moral but they don't go too deep you know because they're not meant to that's not their purpose yeah they're universal stories yeah 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 i mean i think he probably is fundamentally not like the deepest thinker necessarily but i mean you say comedy central roast i'm a guillermo del toro fan i'm i'm i will say that like unequivocally the same way i'll say i'm a paul thomas anderson fan but i can't stand fucking there will be blood i never want to fucking watch it again just like i i'm not a big fan of the shape of water and it's you know it's no i can hold space for both you know i i love I love Del Toro's imagination. I even, you know, I even love that he has that interest in those sort of simpler, like morality fairy tale play kind of things. He seems great. I'm always curious to see what his next project's going to be, and I love many of his movies. I'm just becoming more and more a fan of sincerity in movies because I feel like it's in short supply these days. And if you're coming at me with sincerity and some sort of emotional vulnerability and it's not pretentious and it's not cynical and commercial, good for you. Yeah, I agree with that. But you didn't like The Shape of Water. (laughs) That takes us back to the movie at hand, which I feel like... Now that we've talked about it um, from so many different angles in, in Del Toro's career, I feel like this movie is kind of lacking in sincerity in a lot of ways. And that is why I was confused during much of it. Both times I saw it where I was like, this material like doesn't seem like it's meant to be taken totally seriously, but it's also not played with the level of camp that I would expect for the material at hand. Mm. And there are scenes, certainly, where it does get campy and things do get pretty over the top in a way that I really enjoyed. But for the most part, I found myself just not really caring about the characters very much. Um, Had they been written differently and had the actors performed them differently, it might have carried me through the movie in a more effortless way, but it felt like his sentimentality creeped in again, mm. and he wanted us to live with these people for a while, and there are long stretches where there's not anything totally creepy or horrifying happening, yeah. where I just, like, had enough time to wonder, like, what what draft of this movie was this? Mm. Like, I, I, f- I feel like it, I don't know, I feel like it exists in this weird twilight realm. Those were pretty much my problems with the movie, too. Um, There are stretches that drag where there's not a lot going on. And then character-wise, I mean, we have our hero, Edith, who for long stretches of the movie doesn't do a whole lot. Is kind of, you know, passive, kind of just, you know drinking the tea that they're giving her. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then you have Tom Hiddleston, who 
you know, we, we get the sense pretty early on that this guy's up to no good and he's done horrible things. Um, Mm -hmm. and I just, the way that I think we're supposed to feel about the character in the end didn't really sit well with me. Oh, I would agree with you there for sure. I think we've kind of covered this ground a bit already, but I mean, to me, the balance of camp and sincerity is perfect. You've got, again, Chastain anchoring that sort of universe where it is camp. She still feels a bit, she still feels like a real human, real character. And to me, I was really invested in Edith. I thought Mia Wasikowska gives a really, really nice performance. And I disagree that she's passive. I mean, the girl mm-hmm. keeps going down to the basement, like cracking safes, breaking open vats full of clay and dead bodies. She doesn't really give a shit about the ghost. She's only sort of scared by the ghost yeah, like right. this is kind of a badass i mean presumably because she's been seeing the ghost of her mom since she was a kid mm-hmm. i i liked her as a character and i liked the performance and i certainly connected to her and i connect to hiddleston just being hiddleston all the time he's he's effortlessly charming whether he's playing a villain or not i mean it it does make sense this brings it into a little more focus for me Stephen, where you say you didn't get the the balance wasn't quite right for you between sincerity and camp and and, and it is weird because it's that it's that split it's not all the way over at 100 percent camp and it's certainly not in 100 percent sincerity it's some you know 60 40 55 45 sort of thing and depending on your you know your prescription or whatever it may seem like more or less to me it feels kind of perfect because i don't I mean, I guess this could be a movie where you're just like laughing at how outrageous it is every other minute. But to me, it's just this constantly like it's just constantly tickling my my senses with like beauty and emotion and characters that I care about and horrific shit and sort of silly campy shit. It's just kind of it's like the perfect meal. It's the perfectly well-rounded meal to me where I've got my my app. I've got my main course. I've got my dessert. I've got everything I need out of this movie. (laughs) And that's why I'm so glad you had that experience, because this is a movie that I feel like, I mean, even going into it a second time after not it not really registering me the first time, I mean, this movie f- on paper is written for me. Like, that mm. is my jam. I love those kinds of, you know, The Haunting is another movie that we haven't brought up. It's mm. one of my favorite movies, and there are shades of The Haunting in this. And, and I read a lot of interviews with Del Toro when this movie was being made and, and when it was being promoted and just thought, oh, this sounds like exactly my kind of movie he's gonna get what like why i like these kinds of movies but also do his own weird thing with it and it always just felt like it was being pulled in opposite directions he has a notorious history with dealing with studios and having his vision um uh damped down uh canceled one might say (laughs) (laughs) uh certainly in a number of cases yeah yeah like i feel like every every del toro movie we've we see is like the third movie on the list of the movie on the list of movies he thought he was trying to make yeah you know it's like he wants to make at the mountains of madness and then like three or four movies down is crimson peak and he works through them all and they all get canceled and then he has to do this he's still trying to make hellboy three or he was <laughs> oh god i would love that although they rebooted it since it, to me it always seems like a product more of his own sort of like capriciousness or add or something i i always got the impression that he was dropping projects projects and then choosing to produce them rather than direct a lot of the time and that's how he has that oh del toro's directing this and then six months later oh no he's actually not yeah i mean there is some of that and he's a 
an insanely busy guy. I forgot that he has multiple animated series on Netflix that have been running for the last couple of years. You know, like, he is all over the place, but he's always had his, like, three or four big passion projects that, like, he'll get, like, right up to shooting. You know, he's got models, he's got the monsters designed and everything, and the storyboards, and then it just gets dropped, and then it's like, okay... We, we can't give you this much money. Pacific Rim didn't do mm. well enough to make At the Mountains of Madness. So, But we'll, we'll, we'll let you do Crimson Peak instead after you've already spent two years working on this project. You know, So the, it felt like there might have been a little bit of fatigue going on here with him as well. Hmm. Pacific Rim did do really well, though. I mean, they gave it a sequel, which we actually watched recently and was actually much better than i expected it to be oh really i've been curious about. i mean i'm not going to strongly recommend it to anybody but it was better than i expected did he have anything to do with it i don't know he may have produced i think he he was a producer yeah he was a producer yeah well can we talk about aesthetic for a minute can we talk about design oh my god the color I mean, what else is there to talk about <laughs> well i mean i mean we at have, this point we, well yeah at this point i was gonna say we have just talked for about uh 45 minutes or something but i mean jesus christ like fuck it's it's so gorgeous like every every yeah. detail and every scene is just like i could have a picture of it in my house that i would spend you know 15 minutes looking at all on its own you know yeah oh there's just this shot toward the it's got to be in the final act where we see mia vasikovska like at the end of a hallway and we're chris that look was that that, what pronunciation was that was that accurate i've heard her name pronounced that way on several elite film podcasts oh this is why i might be correct this is why i'm just calling her edith because i i'm not going to try to pronounce her last (laughs) name stick with mine you stick with yours and we'll the listeners uh, i thought she was great for what it's worth i'm surprised she's not a star six years after the fact well that's the interesting thing is that like this is such a like you you know we talked about how scary movie five could only have been made when it was made like (laughs) what other year would you get this movie where hiddleston mia wasikowska and jessica chastain are like the big names like wasikowska and and chastain were pretty big there for a minute and i haven't heard shit about them in like a few years you know like maybe maybe crimson peak killed them and charlie hunnam i was just gonna say that yeah yeah Yeah. what's he been up to the man who would have been Christian Grey. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, Stephen, though, weird. you were No, but the, I think something. the most beautiful shot in the movie to me is, and it's kind of featured on the cover artwork of the Arrow uh, video Blu-ray that came out not that long ago, where she's like at the end of a very long haul. There are lots of long hauls in this manner. And we, but we're seeing it from very high up at the end of the hall, and we see these spiked archways, like building on each other toward her, as if it's this giant, like she's in like the mouth of a whale or something that mm-hmm. has infinite rows of teeth, and it's so fucking cool. Like I paused the movie and took a screenshot of it because I couldn't <laughs> believe it, and that was after I'd already been completely fatigued by the production design in this movie. Just like, yeah, I get it. It's beautiful. I'm into it nothing can surprise me anymore because he's throwing everything at the wall you know (laughs) like there are like five six different you know gel light colors in certain (laughs) scenes you know (laughs) and but it's it's still managed to continue just delighting my eyeballs as this thing went on it's beautiful Uh, yeah one of the things that i loved about it is obviously for me the use of color and i like how the only vibrant colors throughout the film are just primary colors. 
Yeah. Everything else is muted, toned down, and then you have the yellows from uh, Edith and the blue. And obviously, Jessica Chastain's character is in blue a lot, but also she's she's seen in red a little bit. And then obviously, like the blood red of the clay. And I find that very striking. And I mm-hmm. like how intentional that was. Um, I don't know what the meaning is behind only using primary colors, um, but I liked it. Well, it's a it's a fairy tale, so you use primary colors because those are the colors that children relate to. Children see can recognize first and recognize. Yeah. But it's so well. saturated, and there are scenes where there are you know three or four different colors splashed against different parts. You know, it, like Mario Bava, one of my favorite directors, did that a lot. But this was like some next level shit, where it almost made me feel claustrophobic mm. in a in a way that I think may have been intentional, um, because it feels like even if a character isn't in the room, like their color is represented somewhere, and it's influencing mm-hmm. the way that our lead is feeling in that moment. You know what fucked me up? There's that scene uh, adjacent to when she talks about the butterflies and the moths, where Jessica's Chastain and Tom Hill and pull each other aside to talk conspiracy and they're outside it's a sunny day but for some reason all we get is like the orange haze of the sky and they're like in complete silhouette yeah and i paused the movie and went through every setting on my tv to make sure (laughs) that like I wasn't just crushing the blacks on my TV for I some reason. I did the same thing, Chris. <laughs> oh my God. I was like, no way is this supposed to look like this. It looks horrible, and there's no detail on any of these characters. That's just how it is. There were times where I thought, like, sometimes it was so saturated that I was like, this must have been a mistake. But yeah, I mean, like, even even the hair. Like, at one point, I was just like, dude, Mia's hair looks dope. Yeah, mm-hmm. like... Holy shit. I mean, the dresses, like, ah, oh, just just stunning. They did great, but they, they will never win an Oscar for production design or costume design because it was a, not a horror movie, but close enough to a horror movie to be snubbed in every mm. category. Oh, my God. The costume design was absolutely stunning. The puffed sleeves Ugh, on Mia's so dresses were just something that Anne of Green Gables would have absolutely drooled over. Everyone, Even on her nightdress. Mm-hmm. Everyone looked amazing. I was very... I'm not much of a costume person, but I was just enamored with the costumes this time around. I did feel like everyone looked like they must have been sweating balls during this show, yeah. though. <laughs> yeah. So many layers. Well, I was just going to say, as somebody who has worn a costume not entirely dissimilar to one of Jessica Chastain's for a, a um, play before it is very hot very unpleasant to be in (laughs) but you you look great so whatever right (laughs) suffer for fashion it's worth it suffer for fashion yeah I, i was kind of thinking about you know i mean i think one of the common arguments against this movie is that it's you know all aesthetic and I was kind of thinking through that, and I mean, I, I I understand that argument. You know, again, obviously, I disagree with it, but this this is an interesting example to me of the degree to which a film could get by on production design. And I was just thinking of how many you know haunted house movies uh, you might see where you know it's kids dressed in jeans and t-shirts, and it's the same you know like ugly gray blue cinematography where you can't see shit, um, and it's like you know it, you could you could elevate so many 
of those type of productions by like putting some effort into the design of it. You know, I, I, I just like, I want to see, um, I'm trying to think like, what's a good example of one of those shitty, just like really generic movies we've seen. I know exactly what you're talking about, but of course I'm going to struggle to come up with an Polaroids. example. <laughs> I wasn't there for Polaroid. I wow. missed it. But yeah, Polaroid. But sure. That fits the bill. Yeah. Like I, I just, I almost want to see that as, you know, a formal exercise of some sort, like to take a movie like that and, and have the same actor, same script, but, you know, have, you know, Guillermo del Toro and his team direct it. It's never going to happen. I just, it's an interesting thought experiment to me. Oh man. One thing design wise that drove me absolutely crazy though, because it wasn't realistic. <laughs> and this is so fucking nitpicky. Don't be Eat it. The way she slept with her hair at night was <laughs> ridiculous. Like she, she only gets, you can only get those waves from sleeping with your hair in braids. And so when she would wake up, her hair should be a bird's nest and she wouldn't have those waves. That she me. does treat her hair kind of like an extra blanket over her head while she sleeps. I remember yeah. that. And like her hair would be an absolute goddamn mess if this was reality. <laughs> never have those beautiful perfect waves there we go that is the kind of of detail that I wish I don't know how you would do it but if the movie had somehow subtly drawn attention to how ridiculous that was I would have liked this movie more that's the kind of camp I wanted from it because it understands the inherent camp in that but it doesn't play it even remotely for humor that's I see that's interesting I wouldn't want that at all I don't I don't want jokes in this movie you know yeah, I don't know. I I would okay. I don't know if I want jokes. I would love to see the director of the Love Witch redo this movie. Oh. I think that, that's the balance that I want of camp. Yes. camp yes. You'd certainly have more themes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I would absolutely watch that. They go to the mansion oh, and there's just like a 2014 Ford Escape parked. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, the, and the, the mining machine is actually made out of Legos in that version. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I love the, the Love Witch, uh, and I love this, but I would watch this a million more times before I'd watch the Love Witch again. Yeah. I feel like we're uh, approaching the spoiler room here, and I'm, I'm curious. I want to bring up a sort of a, a one global sort of point about this movie that just intrigues me, because it is, as we've talked about and as our discussion has borne out, it is... A divisive movie and that surprised me even when i first saw it i walked out of the theater and i was like that was a blast that was amazing in my head i could not countenance anyone disliking this movie really i thought it was going to be like a hit within you know the sphere of its sort of limited audience um but it has been quite divisive and even like i, I went to that movie with a, a fil- the firm, former film critic from the detroit news who was not a big fan i was kind of shocked even by his reaction when we walked out and i don't know that's just it's still it's still one of those ones that kind of puzzles me because i often see movies where i'm like okay i love this but i can immediately see why many people are not going to be into it many people are not going to dig it and this is just one of those ones that still exists in some weird like blind spot for me where even like now six years later i'm still like why does everyone not love this movie well, and i'm totally genuine when i say that this was my second time seeing it and i enjoyed it more this time than i did the first time and i would just say it's a case of uh 
ex- the wrong expectations and mismarketing and people going into this expecting a more conventional, scarier haunted house type movie and getting this thing which is very different. Yeah, like I was saying earlier with the trailer, it made it seem like this was going to be a gory thrill a minute sort of movie, and it's not. And I think I know I've been burned before by movies where my expectations are set incorrectly and I see it and I just am completely unprepared for what I'm experiencing and I end up disliking it. Um, I mean, they don't even get to the mansion for like 45 minutes of this movie. It's a two hour movie and the first 45 minutes is like Pride and Prejudice. Pretty much. (laughs) I'm not not knocking it. I'm just saying that I I can definitely, you know, your teenagers who went there because they saw the scary CGI ghost in the trailer are going to hate it. And they're the ones who who put the ratings on IMDb. The ghosts are not very scary, and they're not. I don't think they're meant to be most of the time, as well. And I think that's something that got overplayed in the trailer. But you know, our, our heroine is like not particularly terrified of these of of these ghosts. Like she she has a long history of being able to see her mother's ghost. You know, she she has kind of a a bond mm-hmm. with the supernatural realm. But the trailer leads you to believe that this is a movie where ghosts are just fucking crawling down the hall trying to kill her twenty four seven. And I do think I enjoyed it like you did, Chris, more the second time around, having been divorced from those initial expectations. I don't know what y'all are talking about about those ghosts <laughs> not being scary. If I was in an old fucking mansion and I saw that running down the hall, I would shit myself and then die and become one of the ghosts. Yeah, and I mean, going back to the design element, the ghosts, every ghost looks different in a different horrifying way. Those ghosts are imprinted on my brain now. And and you get a ghost in the first two minutes of the movie, and it is gory. Like, Jesus, there are some there's some horrifying gore in this. I mean, I'm just I'm I'm still really we st- we kind of started with this and now we're back to it. I'm still kind of baffled by the concept that this is not a scary or gory movie. Cause to me Did it scare yeah. you? Did you get scared during this movie at all? Yeah. Because Really? Yeah. See, I there's not one single moment in this movie that's gonna be the ghosts are beautifully designed they're amazing they're well i love the ghosts i love the way they're handled love the way they're shot but i didn't feel like i was supposed to be terrified of them i felt like Mm. i was supposed to kind of sympathize with them a little bit you Um, are supposed to but yeah and and there was never a moment where i was like i mean i was like fascinated with how horrific they looked but i never felt like like i was in danger at any point. Hmm. And I'm not saying that's a fault of the movie. I'm saying that's a fault of the marketing. Because I just remember in the trailer, you know, just like the ghost fucking climbing out of the floor and, you know, constantly sort of chasing down our heroine. And and this movie is not bad. Like, the scenes with the ghosts, like, almost always end up on a more, like, kind of human level. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, just completely different perceptions. To me, the ghosts are chilling and the violence is horrifying like jesus so would you view it the mur- the murder of the father <laughs> yeah we got to review this we've just been talking globally like almost this entire we we time. we've just been we've just been banging crimson peaks head on a sink for the last hour <laughs> Yeah, oh banging my head oh on the sink. Talk about so, horror. Oh. So would you would you view it cute or screw it, Patrick? <laughs> uh, you know, I've been deliberating over it a lot. <laughs> I'm going to have to go with the screw it. No, obviously it's a view it. Like, you've listened to the last hour. I fucking love this movie. And I was delighted to see it was on Netflix, delighted to have the opportunity to revisit it. I wasn't sure, you know, how it would hold up. I hadn't seen it in six years. It uh, It delighted me as much as it did the first time. 
Steven. Uh, I'm I'm going to give it a low cue it. I've seen it twice. Lots of things I love about this movie, but I would rather just have the... <clears throat> I wonder if this exists. I, never, I haven't looked it up, but I would love if, if there was one of those like really fancy bound books of all the production art and pre-production art for this movie. Mm. That's all I want. I don't give a fuck about any of these characters. The thing plods along too long without enough of a sense of humor for my taste. Yeah, there's some really great... There's some brutal, shocking impactful scenes in this movie but they're too few and far in between for me to really see them as of a piece with everything else that happens in the film they almost seem to stand out as isolated in in, in their own context so yeah i'll I'll, I'll give it a low cue it chris like i said this movie didn't stick with me um the first time i saw it at all um so i'm gonna give it a cue it it's beautiful i it's enjoyable um it's just it, it plods along a little too much for me and I, I didn't really connect with the characters or even the action in the way I would have liked to. Uh, so I wouldn't say you're missing out on anything too horribly if you'd never see Crimson Peak, um, but it's certainly a fine movie. Allison. I know you're holding your breath at what I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> I definitely give this one a view it. Uh, it is actually a movie that I have recommended to so many people. Like, when people are like, oh, I like Del Toro. I'm like, oh, my God, have you seen Crimson Peak? And they're like, not. And I'm like, shut up. Watch it now. So, yeah, (laughs) that's how I feel about that. Has anyone ever, like, just stopped speaking and started watching it at that moment? Yeah, but that's only because, like, I kind of put a spell on them. And Uh, it wasn't really their decision. So foul play is what you're telling me. (laughs) All right, well, it's time to take the rickety old elevator down to the spoiler room, uncover those giant casks of clay, and see what spoilers we might find inside. But before we do that, I'll remind you, as usual, to visit everyhorrormovie on Netflix.com, hit the merch store link there, buy merch. I don't know, I forget what it says. Merch is in the link. You'll figure it out. (laughs) You're smart. And you can buy t-shirts there. You can buy the, uh, what what did you say before, Allison? Brilliant art or something? That's what our shirts are going to say. Brilliant artists. Brilliant artists, that's right. You can buy those shirts there that we're totally going to have. Also, follow us on social media at AmonCast. And for the acronym challenged among you, that's E-H-M-O-N, standing for Every Horror Movie on Netflix. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We might do a Twitter space soon, even. We'll see what happens with that. We might do a Twitter space. I'd like to. We're on Instagram. uh, So follow us there. Like us. Comment. uh, You know, we'd like to talk to you about these movies. We wanted to hear your thoughts on the Vatican tapes last time. And and, and in fact, we want to hear your thoughts about every movie. Follow me on uh, Letterboxd. Review. (laughs) Follow Chris on Letterboxd. He needs the attention. He needs he needs two followers. Yeah, let's get the follower count to at least two by, by next episode. <laughs> Smash that follow button. And also uh, follow us and review us on your podcast provider of choice because uh, it helps people find the show and also just, you know, just makes us feel good. All right. Y'all ready? Spoiler room time. Let's do it. I can't. We're gonna go down. We're gonna get all the all the big suitcases. It's gonna be like baggage with Jerry Springer. We're gonna open each <laughs> one, and it's gonna be a bigger and bigger spoiler in each one. <laughs> all right, we'll be back soon.
ladies and gentlemen, I've traveled over half our country to be here tonight. I couldn't get away sooner because my new clay dredger was coming in at Crimson Peak and I had to see about it. Ladies and gentlemen, if I say I'm a ghost man, you will agree. I am a ghost man. I'm also an incest man. I run a family business. This is my girlfriend and my sister, Lucille. Now you have a great chance here. I'm fixed like no other baronet in this field, and I can put up the black moths to back my word. I assure you, ladies and gentlemen, no matter what the others promise to do, when it comes to poisoning your wife and hiding her body in a cellar, they won't be there. That is... Tom Hiddleston is <clears throat> Sir Tommy Sharp in Crimson wow, Chris, Peak. My, Great you made clip. my big toe on my left foot shoot up right then. On the on the grand scale of pre-planned Chris bits on Amon, I mean it's it's like middle, it's like Hewitt tier. I would put it below the the Heather uh, impression from Blair Witch Project. That's not a bit. That is that is the sound. That's, that's a clip from the movie. That's a clip from the movie of Tom <laughs> Hiddleston trying to secure financing for his his dredger in the the crimson clay rush of the early 20th century oh that's right i forgot about that bit he did sound a lot like you in that scene yeah yeah so um and i mean those are your spoilers right there he comes out and he just says it all i i don't know why he brought up the incest angle at a business meeting (laughs) (laughs) but (laughs) spoiler alert he didn't (laughs) yeah yeah, I mean Amazing. they're 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 killing uh, uh, Tom Sharp's Tom Sharp's doesn't yeah Thomas yeah. Sharp. I thought I was mixing it up with Hiddleston. They're killing his his past lovers, storing them in the basement, cashing in on their inheritances, and uh, and also Lucille and Tom are fucking. They're doing the, the thing. They're doing the deed. But yeah, so it's yeah. there's there's finance involved. There's escrow involved. Once again, <laughs> we have um, Sir Thomas Sharp, who I guess travels the globe, procuring following, following the long grand tradition of Amon reviewing real estate thrillers, <laughs> which is a horror. Oh, right, in it, aren't your guys' lives real estate thrillers right now? That's what it seems like sometimes. Oh right my yeah. god, don't talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, probably we're going to wind up moving into Crimson Peak at this probably. point. Probably, which you know isn't the worst thing. Whatever. That's that's about all we can afford. As long as Patrick doesn't murder me, I'm okay with it. Just put a tarp over the roof; you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he's he's procuring these women to uh, and, and killing them, and once they sign over their estate, so he can keep the house up and finance his his clay dredging operation. That's the grand conspiracy. All the dead women, all the previous dead wives, one of which he's still legally married to, are uh, kept down in the in the basement in tar in in vats of the mm-hmm. red clay uh to fester and it seems like maybe this is the grand design of sister lucille who uh is in a sexual relationship with loki and they were um (laughs) they were brother and sister and and they were locked up and there's something about you know they were abused maybe locked up yeah their mother abused young thomas and it was potentially going to get worse after mother discovered that they were quite sweet on each other. So she got an axe through her head. Yeah. They killed her first and then they basically they've been running this racket and I don't know if Lucille has always been the brains of the operation or if it's really been a joint partnership. She's the more disturbed one, I would say, of the two. Well, this time, this time, because Thomas Sharp has found true love with Edith. 
It's this is a gothic romance, and so he has found true love. So he wants to change his ways. He's looking at the man in the mirror, and so. He, oh, you know what song I would put as the play out if I was ending this episode. <laughs> so he's trying to pump the brakes, and Lucille's like, "Nah." And first of all, Lucille just has personal animus now against Edith because she's jealous. Yeah. Um, because spoiler and, alert, Edith did end up fucking Thomas. They did. They I mean, did. And you know, um, God forbid they're married. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's some of the funniest. That's some of the funniest, like campy Jessica Chastain shit in yeah. this movie to me is like Jessica Chastain just getting absolutely enraged anytime they come anywhere near having sex with each other, oh, yeah. including like she sweeps in with like a, a platter of tea to serve to everybody one time when they start getting hot and heavy. And then they like get stuck in a snowstorm and have sex in the, I forget where they're holed up for the night and just. Chastain is just furious and like angrily like mashes handfuls of scrambled eggs mm-hmm. as she processes the news. It's oh, it's so good. I'll never think about scrambled eggs the same way again. Yeah, it's all good stuff. Um, so that and you know, so basically they're poisoning her. That's kind of their mo is they poison these women with with tea, mm-hmm. poison tea, uh, which mm-hmm. is obvious even before you right. find out that they're being poisoned with yeah. the tea. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it culminates, you know, basically when Loki tries to stop the action, uh, you know, knives come out, people get stabbed, people get slashed. The doctor from America shows up. Uh, what's his name? Who is he? Charlie Hunnam. Charlie Hunnam. Charlie Hunnam shows up to try to save the day. You know, he gets stabbed. He survives. Long story short, everyone dies except Edith and uh, the doctor who is wounded and, and they go on to start a new chapter in life. Loki is a ghost, a friendly ghost. Uh, <laughs> Lucille is damned to be a, a ghost, uh, played by Doug Jones in the in the house. I'm <laughs> yeah, pretty piano. sure he played all of the ghosts. In well, this. they also used the other guy. They Javier. also used the other guy. Did they? Yeah, they used Javier too, oh. two hander. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Some wow. some jobs are too big for one one slender man you need two slender men there were a lot of fucking ghosts so i understand yeah i think javier botet played three ghosts in this movie apparently it's just super cool i like i wanted i'm i'm sorry to to pause on this but i actually i really appreciate people have complained about the visual effects in this movie i love the way the ghost looked and i felt like it was an effective blend of a practical performance and cgi i thought it was beautiful yeah it still holds up six years later and a lot of people just based on like Rotten Tomatoes like user reviews seem to be like completely turned off solely based on the CGI in this movie. Well, those guys oh. look like CGI even when yeah. they're not, so it always confuses yeah, sure. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I thought the Polaroid man was CGI, but nope, it was Javier. Oh, that's interesting. I I I the visual effects blew me away in this movie and I and I like I mean, they they look unreal in a way that works i guess i would say they look human but also like distinctly unreal in the way that i guess a ghost should look yeah i liked it i dug it one thing i would like to know more is the meaning behind and this goes back to like colors and stuff like that but the different colors of the different ghosts like why are Mm. some ghosts just completely like black skeletal and why are some ghosts like completely blood red um, some ghosts have clothing, other ghosts don't. Mm. Uh, Hiddle's ghost looks similar to himself, IRL. But he's only um, very recently dead. <laughs> so I think well, I, I recognize him for a minute. 
I was like, he's like the, he's very, he's very pale. Like you almost can barely see him. He's almost transparent. And he is this sort of, I want to call it a burnt sienna color. (laughs) And he has like these little trickles of things that are not quite smoke, almost tendrils wafting off him, which some of the other ghosts do. And that was a weird moment for me because I actually said aloud, like, uh, Edith sort of reaches out to him, you know, like trying to touch him. And there's still like clearly some kind of an emotional connection there. And I was like, okay, well, I, he's an incestuous multiple murderer. So let's not get too, up yeah. over this, you know? Well, yeah, that's kind of the thing that bothered me. It's like uh crisis of conscience from Loki is a little too little, too late. Uh, once yeah. as, as the scope and yeah. the, the, you know, longevity of his crimes comes to life. I mean, there's been plenty of other Ediths who he's killed without remorse so much so that he got into this planning to kill Edith. I can't really latch on to the tender love story. Yeah, Um, well, and I don't think you have to. I think there's plenty of gothic horror stories, love stories that you're not necessarily supposed to romanticize, um, even though they, or maybe this is just my perspective because I don't romanticize them, even though, you know, they may be presented and that to me the subtext is still this is fucked up and you shouldn't like it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, to me, obviously, there's lots of elements of romance to it. But, I mean, obviously, in the end, you're still supposed to know this is a bad guy. And, you know, she runs away from it. Obviously, she takes the appropriate action against both of them, which is, you know, stabbing them a lot. Yeah. I was a little disappointed that Jessica Chastain's death wasn't more gruesome. I wanted to see her get fucking wrecked in the worst way possible. And I felt bad for feeling that way. They're like playing around by the clay scooping machine and this was my expectation was that one of those, she was going to get Jessica Chastain's head under the clay scooping thing and just one of those bulldozer scoops was yes. just going to just chop the top of her skull off. At the, very, the value of the clay. At the very least I wanted her, <laughs> you know, what we wind up with is a shovel and not the um, the clay scooping thing. And I th- I really was yeah. hoping Mia would decapitate her with the shovel. Not that we haven't seen that before, but it felt like it was, it felt like it was going to go there, and that would be so satisfying. Every other death in the movie is so extreme, yeah. and it almost seemed tame compared to, you know, the cleaver to the head and the bashing the head on the sink and the stabbing a pen directly into... Well, I guess that's the first time she essentially kills Lucille, and Lucille somehow doesn't die from having a pen stabbed, like, directly into her heart. Oh, and Tom Hiddleston gets stabbed right in the cheek? In the... Yeah. Which was oh, yeah, that's... In, in, back to to um, uh, Mia's character's father. I mean, we did talk about it a little bit, but that fucking bathroom murder scene is one of the most brutal. That was like almost like the scene in Irreversible, where the guy's head gets bashed in mm. by the fire extinguisher. That was. Rough. I thought I was yeah. watching HBO for a minute. <laughs> yeah, I. That was one of the parts of this movie that I definitely remembered, and I was really dreading having to watch again. It's hard to sit through. Because seeing somebody's face get bashed in, just, I can't, I can't do it. You want to hear something crazy? Tell us something crazy. Let's get nuts. I saw that. You want to get nuts? Let's get (laughs) nuts. Come over to my place and see a pizza roll. (laughs) (laughs) I saw this movie before, and I totally misremembered the ending. I remembered, like, a house on Haunted Hill scenario where one of the skeletons was going to come out of the vat of clay and, and get Jessica Chastain. 
Oh, okay. and that's what I, I like. That. Drag, and, drag me to hell, ask too. And yeah. and when towards the climax, uh, Edith's creeping around and she has a big ass knife and she like sets it on the ledge of the crate <laughs> of the clay vat. I'm like, oh, I, I have seen this movie. I know what's going to happen. <laughs> no skeleton coming out of the, the vat. Uh, we got something more pedestrian than that. But I, it was weird how my memory just invented that. Because I, re- I remembered the bones coming out of the thing. Yeah. So one thing that I actually liked about the use of the ghosts in this movie is that they are nothing but memories. They don't actually have any physical. Um, they don't pose a threat, really. Consequences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. They're they're scary, but they you know so like presumably. They they might not even be real, right? They're just like the whispers of the horrifying. Past. They're guides. They're yeah. warnings for our protagonists. Yes. I really appreciated that too. That like, and that's I, I was saying earlier. I didn't really find them to be all that threatening or like scary, but certainly creepy because the ghosts don't really do any harm. At the end of the day, they do right. a lot of good. I think. Right, and like she even says when she's talking about her own novel that she's writing the ghosts are metaphors yeah, yeah. like it's not they're not the actual threat and i loved that they did pull that line through oh yeah this is film. this is this movie is a little meta in that she's writing a story that's very similar to the story uh, <laughs> which i'm sure there's a fan theory out there that's like did you know that all of crimson peak is just edith's story that she writes well, in her boring well, desk job. I mean, it that's is. in the credits. Yeah. Like the, it, credits. Yeah. the credits have an image of a book closing. It says oh. Crimson Peak written by Edith Cushing. Like that is literally the premise. You just described the premise of the movie, Chris. Very okay. good. Okay. <laughs> A lot of critics like incorrectly refer to the house as Crimson Peak, and it's like, no, Crimson Peak is not that. The house has its own name. Crimson yeah. Peak is the book. It's Allerdale Hall. Yes, thank you. That was a good twist, Which, though. Isn't that actually from a? It sounded familiar to me. Short story by Poe about a decaying house. I got to look it up. I don't know, okay. but like the, her last name being Cushing and the the hammer esque yes. trappings of this film cannot be a co- uh, coincidence. That's for sure. I also comically misread the moment where Charlie Hunnam gets stabbed because Tom Hiddleston basically they're going to kill him. Tom Hiddleston takes the knife and he's like, "All right, well if I don't stab you, she's going to stab you. Tell me where you'll want it." Because you're a and doctor. Is like, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I read it as like. Let me give you a merciful death because you're going out either way. Chris, like, that's how, like, how do we do this quick and clean? That's how you're supposed to read it. I think I was like, I, oh, like while it? I was watching this last night with my friend, we were like debating it as it was happening, and he was he was like, "Oh, that's a really humane death, like for this evil guy." And I was like, yeah. no, 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 he's not going to kill him." But you you're meant to believe that at first. Well, but he's really it's like a good thing Charlie Hunnam didn't misunderstand it the way I did. Because <laughs> he like points to his liver or something. That was a cool like, scene where I'm like, I've never seen, I've never seen like that moment in a film before, like in a, in a death scene. Um, another thing I've never seen is when this is a small thing, but it fucking creeped me out when Jessica Chastain pulls the knife away from our protagonist, like by the blade during a skirmish. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, when she, like, Jessica Chastain has the blade in her hand yeah. and, like, drags it, like, drags her own, like, hand and fingers through the blade and you see the, the blood dripping down. That's, and yeah, manages that's to intense. get the knife away and use it against her yeah. afterward. I was like, that's 
that's pretty fucking cool. I wish this movie yeah. had more of that. Pretty fucking metal. I have a much less uh, gruesome moment to talk about from very early on in the movie that I'm curious to get y'all's thoughts on. I really enjoyed the waltz scene. Oh, yeah. Early in the film. Sign me up. And because that did feel very of a piece with the kinds of movies and stories this is paying homage to. And I love it. So they're, you know, it's, it's kind of the, it's kind of the meat cute or it's shortly after the meet cute between, uh, between Loki and Mia. And she doesn't think she's going to get picked to dance with him. She's unsure how she feels about him. He picks her and she's still kind of reluctant, but he convinces her And the whole point of this gesture, this grand gesture he's doing to kind of win her over, of course, with ulterior motives is that they're going to do this waltz in front of this, this gala audience, uh, in which they have a candle. And if they do the waltz, properly the flame will not blow out on the candle and i was positive that that was cgi but according to tom hiddleston they managed to do a take of that dance where the flame did not go out he did add the he did add the caveat that the flame had a double wick which kept it blowing Ah, but i read that before i saw it this time going in and i followed it and i was like god damn it you know what that looks like a real flame I have a pretty keen eye oh. for CGI, I think. I was watching it intently because it comes so close. Like, I mean, the flame does, like, almost go out yeah. so many times, and then it, like, sparks back up. I, I was following it intently and was rather bewitched by it. Yeah, if only there were movies that were just about that. <laughs> Well, there are, and that's the other weird thing about this movie is I don't, I just, I, I, whether it's horror or not, I'm not a big fan of period pieces. I can't, mm. especially this era, I just hate the stilted formality of everything, and it just, it takes me out of it so much. So that's another, like, sort of strange thing for me where it's like, wow, it's a period piece and I love it? Like, this must be doing something special. And the something special is that it's very colorful and exquisitely designed and has ghosts and murder gr- gruesome murder in it yeah i haven't loved a period piece especially from this era um like this since 1920 london <laughs> <laughs> yes so i was just doing like some very brief reading and where i got the thing about edgar Allan poe was actually crimson peak is largely inspired by a short story by edgar Allan called the house of uh, usher that makes oh, yeah. perfect Follow the sense. house of usher that makes perfect sense yeah yeah so that's what i was that's where like the connection because i had seen i had read it or watched like a depiction of it once and i think it just stuck in my mind and then crimson peak really reminded me of it that's kind of funny, actually, because we just watched uh, another adaptation of The Fall of the House of Usher in Scary Movie 5. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Usher was in that. <laughs> and that was, and boy, was that a fall for him. Oh, my God, Patrick. That was great. Um, <laughs> that was like a Chris joke. I'm proud of myself. I, I thought of it, but I didn't say it, and then you said it. <laughs> All right, well, speaking of saying things, do we have anything else to say about Crimson Peak? Well, I mean, this is completely random, but Allison reminded me that 
I love the fall of the House of Usher, and I just had this flash on Ray Bradbury wrote a story called Usher Two that you should all check out. Which oh is yeah, a, like I think it might be from the Martian Chronicles. Like I think it's like the fall of the House yeah. of Usher on Mars, and it's fucking yes. wild. Oh. It is. <laughs> That's great. Oh yeah, all the Edgar Allan Poe stories are in the public domain. You can do whatever the fuck you want with them. I should just start writing sequels for all of them. I should make an Edgar oh, Allan yeah. Poe cinematic universe. We can have like yeah. Have them fight each other and shit. We can have fucking <laughs> Usher, the Raven Usher versus, versus the Raven, <laughs> <laughs> the Pit versus the Pendulum. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 uh, Usher, ver, Usher v Raven, Dawn of Amontillado. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's gonna be great. I, want this. I actually I have read Usher too, but I don't think I've ever read The Fall of the House of Usher. So I'm absolutely going to finally read that now and then reread Usher too because I remember enjoying it and the whole book, The Martian Chronicles. But I don't remember anything about it at this point. All of Edgar Allan Poe's stories, you're they only take like ten minutes to read, so you can yeah. become very well read yeah. in, a, in an afternoon. Yeah. Unlike episodes of this podcast, which drag on for an hour and whatever we're up to now, imagine so we're gonna this. imagine I, that someone could have oh, read oh, like the it's, twenty. It's going longer. We're going the, in overtime. Someone could have read the twenty greatest works of Edgar Allan Poe in the time they spent listening to this podcast. Can you think of a more depressing statistic? I will say, I, whenever, whenever I set the Zoom meeting during the pandemic for this show. The timing of it is always aspirational, <laughs> um, and I did cut it down from 7 to 8.30, and uh, knowing that we would go until 9, but probably not too far beyond that. I think I hit the mark. Well, let's get the hell out of here, then. I think that's it. So what the hell are we watching next time? It's Steven's turn to pick. Okay, so I was... <laughs> this is a, a pleasant surprise, I hope. Um, I was just kind of scrolling through what's on Netflix and the horror category. Nothing was really grabbing me. And I saw the title, The Bar. And I thought, hmm, let's see what that's about. Because that'd be funny. Like, we're getting to the point where we're all, you know... Most of us are fully vaccinated. I'm close. We can go out to the bar again soon. Maybe it'll still be as horrifying as it was in pre-pandemic times and we'll remember why that can be a an unpleasant experience what's this horror movie about and it turns out it's directed by alex de la iglesia whose movie the day of the beast i recommended a couple of episodes ago he's a, a pretty prolific spanish director and has a fucking wild sense of humor i think this is going to be a pretty awesome very dark horror comedy possibly with religious undertones so we're going to watch the bar in two weeks wait is it about a bar like a watering hole or about like a sandbar or about like passing the exam to become a lawyer great questions it's about a watering hole bad things happen to people in a bar guys it's gonna be fun (laughs) bad things happen to people in a bar and it's gonna have a wild sense of humor and probably be pretty uh bloody and gruesome wonderful if we were at the bar you had a gin and tonic I had a gin and tonic over here, but my straw goes all the way down the bar. All right, all right, no more of that. We will, we will see you next episode for the bar for every horror movie on Netflix. I'm Patrick. I'm Chris. I'm Steven. I've been Allison. And we will see you next time. No